The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Uh, the, t- the title of this talk today is The Crown of Christ and the Loyalty It Demands. What loyalty it demands. We left off last week in verse 20. And those of you who weren't here, we are going through the book of Colossians for the summertime. And Christos is Greek for, Crete, for Greek for Christ, becoming the person that God wants you to be. And so we looked at chapter 1. And all the way through verse 20 last Sunday, and you can listen to that on the podcast if you missed it. And we're not going to go into the next nine verses of chapter one, which uh, are, there's some excellent, excellent material there. I encourage you to look at that and study it for yourself, read it. We'll go into chapter two this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that, and we'll take a look at chapter two, verse one. It says this. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by the strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie all the hidden treasures of wisdom And knowledge. I am telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. Paul mentions God's mysterious plan. And you have to understand that. Jesus, when Jesus came, he fulfilled everything that was in the Old Testament. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Not that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore, but that it's fulfilled in Christ. And so the Jewish people as a nation for thousands of years were hoping and praying and seeking God for the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. The promise that he gave Abraham is that they would be a great nation, the greatest nation in all the earth. And so if you were a follower of God during those years and during those times, you would have been hoping that the Messiah would return, that Israel would overcome and defeat every nation on the face of the earth. It would become the greatest nation on the earth, and the Messiah would rule in Israel over all the world and all the nations. They would be the inheritance of all of this coming through the Messiah. And so that's how they understood God's plan to be. They were the chosen people. They had God. They had the word. They knew God. And the rest of them were just tough luck. All right? If you are a Gentile, you're on the outside. You are not a part of the promises of God. You don't get the promises of God. You don't get God. You are on the outside. And that's how they perceived God's plan from the very beginning. So that's how things were going to be. That's how they interpreted it. They were trying to interpret and understand what God is doing on the earth. Just like we are. 
right? Every Christian is doing that, trying to figure out what God's up to, what his plan is, how it's unfolding, what's going to happen. Now for us, it's more the end times, the return of Christ, and all of that. For them, it was the Messiah. And so when Jesus came and told them he was the Messiah, everything changed now. Because now, all the Gentiles were being allowed in. And Jesus wasn't defeating all the governments and defeating the Romans and making this great nation of Israel. Instead, he suffered and died on a cross. And so most Jewish people could not accept Jesus as Lord. They just could not, they could not reconcile thousands of years of history with Jesus. And they did not understand what Paul understood is that God's plan was right from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through his plan always was Jesus. His plan always was the Gentiles. That God wasn't just about the nation of Israel. That he was, was making a way for all of humanity to come underneath his fold and his protection and his relationship with him to receive forgiveness, not just the nation of Israel. And so Paul is explaining this to the church at Colossae. See, this is their background and their understanding. These are Gentiles, some Jews. And he's explaining, now listen, God had you in mind all the way from the beginning, and he's revealed his plan, this incredible plan that he's had. He's, he's revealed it through Jesus Christ. The human mind is incapable of understanding the complexity of God and his plan and all that he's doing. Human reasoning cannot put together the steps that God takes and the things that God is about. If man had come up with this plan, the gospel, let's say, the gospel, let's just pretend for a minute, the gospel was not God's idea. So some dude in a cave a rock fell down, hit him on the head, and he wrote the gospel. Okay? And it's all fabrication, it's all lies, it's all false. It's written by man. If that happened, then the gospel would not have been given out the way it was. Because when we get a hold of a secret, the first thing we do is we keep it. We withhold it. And in fact... We, if we had been given a secret so great of this and the mysteries of God revealed, all of our enemies wouldn't get it, right? You wouldn't share that with your enemies. You'd keep that from them. And if, and if there was a group of people that you despised, one let's say you, were, you had racism in your heart and there was one group of people you hated, you certainly would not share the great mystery and secret with them. Or how about criminals and bad people? Well, you definitely, they don't deserve it. You would withhold the secret from them. In fact, you might even be so corrupt, and man probably has done this over and over and over anyway, you would charge people to have the secret, wouldn't you? Man would. That's exactly what he would do. He would keep it from some people, and he would charge people. After all, we have to build these big cathedrals, and it costs so much money. So now if you want to know the mystery if you want to be in the club, you got to pay. That's what would happen if man had given the gospel. But it didn't come from man. This was God's plan. And so therefore he revealed it to the whole world and is revealing it over and over 
to the whole world through all of us. He mirrors what he said in in chapter 1 about not allowing yourself to be deceived by crafty arguments, well-crafted arguments. These are external threats upon the church at Colossae. You've got to remember, these are brand new Christians. The church is brand new. It just formed. They'd never met Paul. He'd never been there to see these Christians, although he wanted to. He wasn't able to go see them. And so he's writing to them to build them up and build up their faith because they're under this demonic onslaught, this attack from the enemy, from the devil, to get these folks to go against the gospel to adopt beliefs, concepts from the culture that go contrary to what God had already said. And these were unleashed on this church by brilliant, educated, smart, popular individuals within the culture who are going into them saying, hey, listen, God didn't really say that. Or it doesn't mean that. What you have been taught that it means, it means something else. And so they were under this onslaught. Now, listen, when the devil is going to attack you and me, all right, he's going to use very carefully crafted wording, brilliant wording. Now, you've got to pay attention because this is happening today. We are under the same kind of attack today. And so he's going to very crafty wording. If the devil came to you, this is just average Joe Kirsch, he came to you and said, oh, no, 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 listen. Jesus, he was actually um, uh, a rebel. He, 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 he slept with multiple women. He smoked marijuana on the side. And he listened to the Doobie Brothers. Right, you'd laugh, right? Come on. Ha ha. I don't believe that. So he's not going to do that. Of course not. Devil's wise. He's crafty. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. So what's he going to do? He's going to take the Bible and he's going to present the Bible to you 99.9%. Leaving off that little tiny bit that makes everything he's saying a complete lie and falsehood but so that you can't detect it. So you don't see it. So you're just living your life for God and you're trying to be a good Christian and all of a sudden this new belief thing comes right in and just slides right in. It sounds Christian. It sounds right. Statements like love. God is a God of love. Who would argue with that? God is kind. He loves people. He loves everybody. Yes, it's very true. But there's always a little bit of lie and deception. And the devil's very careful with it against all of us so that you'll buy into it. Now, what good is bait if it can't disguise the hook? Uh, He works like a hunter. And uh, he uses a blind. So he builds this very crafty blind of uh, very familiar things that you're familiar with. Everything that you're used to seeing, he knows, he understands. So he builds this blind, and so you think all is well. And so you're circling up there above. You're, you're, you're a drake. You're, some of you know what that is. You're circling above. 
And you see down on the ground there are all these hens, and they're happy. They're scooting around, they're happy. And it all looks so calm and wonderful and safe. But you're leery. You've been taught, be careful. Be careful of the deceptions. So you swoop down and take a look. You look, looks good, looks good. All looks good, looks safe to me. So you come in for the safe, wonderful, soft landing. Right as you come right above the water, the blind comes off and boom, boom, boom. And your dinner. That's exactly how the devil works. You don't see it coming. Unless you're careful. Unless you're watching. Unless you've grounded and rooted yourself in truth. You will not see the lie. That's how brilliant it is. And so the church is under this enormous pressure to adopt Beliefs from the culture. Beliefs that go against or contrary to what God had already said. Verse 6. He says, And now, just as you've accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Okay? You've got to pause there. Look at that. I mean, that's so profound. You've accepted Christ... You must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down deep into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world. Remember we talked about that last week, about the spirit of the age, which is the devil. Okay, He's, he's, he's involved heavily in this world, and his, um, his, truth is const- his form of truth is constantly attacking God's truth. Spiritual powers of the world, rather than from Christ, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God, in a human body. He's talking about the incarnation there. He says, so look at this. Christ is king, and therefore now you must continue to follow him. This is a theme all throughout Colossians, that belief, a belief in Christ or a belief in faith, that does not have a massive impact on your lifestyle is a faith that is useless. There's no power in it. It's empty. He's saying that there is is no power, no position, no person, no animal, no thing, no alien or universal force greater than Jesus. He's Lord of all. King of kings, Lord of lords. And this is true whether you believe in Christ or you don't. The fact that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords applies to atheists every bit as much as it applies to us. As we know, in Philippians 2, Paul said this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. In other words, he has authority over everything. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to glory of the God, the Father. So Jesus is Lord over everything. So think of any authority on the earth and automatically you know Jesus rules over it. Now, Paul, if you look here carefully, Paul is making a connection between his lordship and our servanthood. The two go hand in hand. So if he's not lord, then you're free to do whatever you want, right? But if he is lord, then there are restraints, right? Right, he's lord, we're not. When he's lord, we are automatically dethroned. We are no longer Lord. We are no longer in charge. We are no longer boss. We submit to him. Now, in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, within a very, very short period of time, six chapters, which we don't know exactly how much time that is, but it's pretty short. The earth had uh, tons of people. And when God looked at the condition of humanity, he said, every single one of them is evil and considers every thought from birth is evil. And so he chose Noah and his family, and he said, I'm going to wipe out everybody else. So the flood came, killed everyone except Noah and his family, And so then at that point, the Lord said, okay, okay, second go around here. We're going to have to put in some restraints so that this doesn't happen again. Because when sin is in, if sin is allowed to just run rampant, it destroys absolutely everything. Absolute wipeout. Just like it did before. Sin hates everyone. Sin is death. Everywhere sin is, death follows. If sin could, it would kill God. So the Lord began to give out restraints, restraints on the earth. And I'll go through them just briefly so that you know uh, they correlate to this chapter. Uh, There are four of them. The first one is conscience. Paul wrote in Romans 1 that the truth of the gospel is written on the hearts of men. So every single person on the face of the earth knows the difference between right and wrong because of their conscience. Have you noticed that your dog has learned that? Isn't that amazing? Our little cute little Zoe, of course, she was absolutely not herself yesterday because of the fireworks. But, um, and I think because she's getting near her period, so she was just not herself. <laughs> and uh, so you can look at her, and with a little, little word, the ears go back. You know, that look, that look of, uh-oh, I was bad. You know, if you don't have a dog, you have no clue what I'm talking about. But believe me, it's true. So God has written on the hearts of men that they would know the truth. So there is no excuse. And so all of us, we have that voice inside of us that says, hey, no, 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 no. That is you got you went too far on that. You hurt her with those words. You see, see, she's recoiled and pulled back. You, you hurt her with that. And your conscience is telling you that. You know, no, no, you took too much. 
You, you, you're being selfish. You need to put some back. You share a little bit. You see how our conscience works. It tells us the truth of lie. God gave us that to curb sin. The second one he gave is the family. We are in sin from birth. All of us. You, you have a baby. Uh, Matt and Emily had their baby this morning. Anyway, they sent me a picture. Beautiful little baby. Uh, too bad he didn't have that baby yesterday. Huh? Fourth of July baby. Anyway. What was I saying? The family. So God gives the, gives the family. And, and you see in babies, babies have that sin nature, don't they? You're right from the beginning. You see that in a child. And so God put this together, this thing called the family. You have a mom and you have a dad. And their job, and this is interesting because listen, God put this in. It doesn't matter where you go on the face of the earth. You can go to people who are running around naked and living in huts. And people in penthouses in New York City, they intuitively know, without anyone telling them, hey, it's my job to make sure this kid doesn't go wild. So God put that inside of a mother and a father to train a child to curb sin. So we're not giving birth to all these little demons running around destroying the earth. If you don't believe me, think about this. We take a random thousand people. We just round about a thousand people. And we say, okay, there are two worlds you can live in. In this world over here, world A, you can do whatever the heck you want. There are no rules. Do what you want. Live free. World B, there are some rules. You can't do whatever you want. You got to follow the rules. And if you break the rules, there's consequences, and some of them are heavy, and you will have to work. There's work here, and there might even be some suffering for some of you. Now, we present those two worlds to that random 1,000 people. Which one do the people choose? Tell me. A, right? Yeah, okay, so maybe we've got two or three melancholies that like the rules. They go over there. But everybody else? Hey, you're going over here, right? Because we have this inside of us. See, we carry inside of this this thing that says, I'm going to break the rules. So God gave the family, mom and dad, to curb that, to bring some restraint. The third restraint that he gave was the church. As one of the functions of the church is to say to the culture, hey, this is right, this is wrong. Now, you can really do that in a horrible way, so you just sound like a, a judgmental jerk, an unloving religious monster. Or you can do it in a way like a parent would with their child. Right? So you teach your kids in a way to build them up. You don't discipline your kids because you hate them, because you love them. And so that's the church's role in society. And then finally, he gave government. It's interesting to me to, 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 to think about this. Anthropologists have found all throughout the world that it doesn't matter what kind of society it is, within a very short period of time, they begin forming a government. It doesn't matter anywhere in the world because God imprinted that upon us. The government's role is to curb sin. So if you're going to kill somebody, we're going to squish you. We're going to capture you and put you in prison. 
You cannot do certain things. The government says, this is bad, this is good. And it's all of these restraints, all four of them are for what? For God to make this a better place to live. It's not to be the ultimate killjoy, but to bring safety in society so that sin doesn't get so rampant that he has to absolutely destroy everything again and start over. And so actually these four restraints have been working quite well. They're designed by God to bless us. Now, Paul tells us what it means to submit to the lordship of Christ. What does that look like? When you say submit to the lordship of Jesus, what does that mean exactly? How does it play out? And he explains it in four ways. And so he says, first of all, we are rooted. Okay, We're firmly planted. He says we're built on him that we're strengthened and that we're overflowing. All four of those see there that we see. So, first of all, he uses the image of a plant. A plant being firmly planted. Our faith grows when we are planted into good soil. So, I think you can make a very strong case here for being planted in the church. And hopefully it's a church, it's a Bible church, and they're providing nourishment for you as a Christian, but you must be planted. So if you're moving around from church to church to church to church, you're not planted. You're not putting your roots down. You put them down deep, get involved in that church, be committed to a group of people, get involved in community, and you'll find that your faith grows. In that environment, God designed it that way. He said that's exactly what's going to happen. Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the steps of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted, planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither, Whatever they do prospers. Our faith grows when we're planted. When we are not planted, you stunt your growth as a Christian. The second characteristic gives us to be built upon. It's foundation, right? The foundation is Christ. And if there's something wrong with the foundation, what happens to everything else that's built? It's all messed up, right? It's... Weak, it may fall, it may falter. Your faith will give out on you. You'll have this massive crisis and boom, out the window goes your faith. Now you're left with just whatever you've got and it may not be enough. And so the foundation, our whole life must be built on Jesus Christ and nothing else. Can you say that? Can you say that about yourself? Can you say My whole life is built on Jesus Christ. The second thing I think that it says here is that you're not a finished product. None of us are. God is still at work. It's a work in progress. You know, you're going to be working on your faith all the way until your death. In fact, that's what makes a, what should we call them? That's what makes a seasoned Christian, get my meaning? Some, a well-seasoned Christian, that's what makes them so wonderful, is that they believe they have not arrived. And they're still learning. They're still growing. 
and it makes them wonderful to be around. Nothing worse to be around a cranky person who thinks they've got it, and now their job is to put it on the rest of us. Oh, joy. If you're not a finished product, then you should not be comparing yourself to other people. Because that's a messed up system. So you compare yourself to somebody who hasn't built as much as you and you feel great. But you compare yourself to somebody else who's built a whole lot more than you because they're in a different place in their faith and you feel bad. And so you feel good and you feel bad based upon the current comparison that you're using. And so Paul says it's all false. Compare yourself to Christ and Christ alone. That's the only legitimate comparison. You against Christ So always compare yourself with him, never with other people. Now, the fourth characteristic is overflowing with thankfulness. Um, I love this picture because this is a picture of a tree planted on the rock by the stream. It's a great image there of how we should live our lives. Green leaves... And green grass is an indication of a healthy plant. Everybody knows that. you got brown leaves. That thing is dying, right? So green leaves, green grass is a sign of healthy uh, plants. It's also the sign of a healthy Christian when you see thankfulness. A healthy Christian should be pouring out continually thankfulness. Thanking God for all that he's done. A thankful heart, appreciative heart. It's, a, it's the only way that I have found that, to defeat depression. And depression comes on you, and it comes on you like a wet blanket, like a glove. I mean, it's hard to shake that thing off of you. It sticks to you like glue. And thankfulness is the only way to get it off, or at least to push it back, as you begin to thank God over and over. Because when you're thankful... You're no longer focusing on all the bad stuff in your life. When you're full of thankfulness, you have no longer a need to compare yourself to everybody else. You're content with who you are and what you have. And when you're full of gratitude and thankfulness, you're also far more aware of the arguments, deception that's around you. So he's referring to verse 8. Now... um, He identifies two sources here that work against the gospel. Verse 8. Human tradition, and these are the popular beliefs held by our culture in America, the popular beliefs in America, and you've been hearing them all your life. So that's that's what's going against the church and against the truth and demonic forces. And they work hand in hand together, um, working together, and he calls them hollow or empty. So these, these arguments, they're empty. They promise fulfillment and they deliver emptiness. Listen to this. The culture will never be able to satisfy your soul. Never. There's absolutely nothing that they can offer that's going to make you feel whole. Nothing. It 
only thing he says that gives us that sense of fulfillment is Jesus. He's the only one that can. Everything else is empty. Everything else that contradicts Christ is empty. Everything that goes against what Christ has said is empty. It's going to fail you. And I don't care how much love you feel right now. It doesn't matter how good you feel. You can stand there and say, I feel so good. I feel so good. This is right. This is great. This makes me feel great. If it's contrary to Christ, then just give it a matter of time. In a month or a year or at some point, you're going to be all alone and empty because it's not able to satisfy you like Jesus is. It's like trying to feast yourself on air. You gobble, gobble, gobble all you want. You're still hungry, still empty. You can consume, consume our culture in huge quantities. I mean, just indulge yourself. Just throw yourself into every bit of pleasure or wonderful thing that is promised to us in our American culture indulge yourself and at the end of the day be absolutely completely empty hungry it does nothing because it can't look at verses 9 and 10 it says for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have brought been brought to fullness we have fullness in Jesus he is the head over every power and every authority. Because Christ is God and because everything is under his authority, the only fulfillment in life is through Jesus. So when you feel empty, you know, people describe that empty feeling in a lot of ways. Some people say they feel lost. I feel lost. They're saying, my, my, your soul's talking to you. Your soul's crying out and it's saying, I'm empty. I'm dying here. That should be an automatic trigger to say, Jesus, help me. Cry out to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. I need more of Jesus, not more of whatever. I've noticed in my own life, the farther I get away from Jesus, the more of the culture I crave. Those two things kind of go hand in hand. So the more I drift away from my relationship with Christ and the more I neglect prayer and the word and being with other Christians, I get way over here and all of a sudden I've just got this insatiable appetite for sin. I mean, I'm just hungry for it. And I'm looking like a, like a hungry wolf what sin I can get myself on and get into because I am turning, I'm walking away from Christ. But you can feast on worldliness all you want, and you will still be hungry. So here we come to the, to the end of it for today, at least. Verse 10. What do we do about all of this? He says, So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and every authority. There it is. He sums up the whole thing right in that verse. We are complete a good feeling. 
We are whole in Christ Jesus because of our union with him. So what should we do? Seek Jesus. It's that simple. Seek Jesus. Speak out his name. You know when, you know depression. Depression is so powerful, so ugly. And I found in my own life that you can kind of get comfortable with it. You know, you're just kind of get used to a certain level of depression in your life. And it's like the Lord is saying to me, John, you've got to be militant against that. Don't accept that roommate. Kick him out. Get militant with that. I mean, proclaim the name of Jesus at that thing. Fight it. Push it back through the name of Jesus. Claim the name of Jesus. Claim his blood. Seek to understand Jesus more and what he wants of your life. Get into the scriptures. Call up another Christian that you know and ask them to pray for you and read scriptures over you. Listen to your parents. <laughs> That's that restraint, right? Listen to them. And get planted into a church. And that, Planted is not once a month. Planted is, is more than that. It's in a community group. It's being a part of the community. Being planted. Then you grow. Then your faith is strong. Then when all hell breaks loose, everybody around you is freaking out, but you're solid as a rock. You're firm. You're joyful. You're okay. You're full. You're content. You have Jesus. When you have Jesus, you need nothing else. So let's pray about this. And, and especially those of you who struggle with depression... I really identify with you. When you have pain in your body all the time, you know, you can have it one day, that's fine, no big deal, okay? Anybody can do one day. Well, you do, do 10 days and a month and six months and a year and five years, at some point, the depression kicks in. <laughs> all right, at some point you go... I can't do this anymore. And we all hit that point. And so, if we put our roots down deeper and get closer to Christ, that is our best defense against this suffocating, horrible thing called depression. So if that's you and you suffer with that this morning, I want to pray with you right now. I want to pray for you. We could pray together that God would help you draw near to him and to receive from him all you need to be joyful and prosperous as a Christian.